0: All right. Well, welcome to the Biblical Worldview. My name is Joel Sedekes, and if you're listening to this later on on the Think Pod, on the Think Podcast or on our YouTube channel, let me just tell you what's going on here. This is a very special episode. This is session 1 of the Biblical Worldview course. And this is a course aimed at answering the question, how does the Bible make sense? of the world. It's my hope that this is going to give you the resources and the knowledge and even the motivation that you need to faithfully articulate the biblical worldview to answer the most important, most vital questions of life. So, who am I? My name is Joel Sedekes. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, If you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge. And it's actually led to some real life hangouts as well. So check it out the Think Squad Facebook group. All right, let's start with the idea of a worldview. What is a worldview? That's what we need to talk about. What is a worldview? It's important to define our terms in order to make sense of them and to use them properly. Um, you know what? Before we begin, though, let me ask you this question. How confident are you right now in your ability to articul- art- articulate the biblical answers to the big questions of life about God, right and wrong, truth, human nature, the meaning of life, and destiny. If you would, if you're taking notes right now, go ahead and just jot down from 1 to 10 how confident you feel to explain the Bible's answers to those big questions of life. In this session, you're going to learn what a worldview is, you're going to learn why it's important to have a biblical worldview, and you're going to learn the seven questions that all worldviews must answer. You're also going to learn about some of the biggest competitors to the biblical worldview. And uh, as we go, we're going to do a lot of comparison between the Bible's um, worldview, the Bible's way of viewing the world in perspective, and some of its top competitors, if you want to call them that. All right, let's start with what is a worldview? Always important to define our terms. What is a worldview? Well, according to Jeffrey Ventrella, a, a worldview is a network of presuppositions through which one interprets all human experience. What is a presupposition? A presupposition, as I explained it to my high school students, is a belief that you start with before you do anything else. It is, it, well, it's all right there in the word, pre suppose. Your uh, pre-meaning before, this is something that you are supposing, something that you are believing before you begin any kind of intellectual or scientific or rational inquiry into the world. So it's a network of presuppositions. Uh, another thinker puts it this way. It is a set of assumptions which we hold about the basic makeup of the world. These assumptions Are generally unquestioned by each of us. And they are rarely, if ever, mentioned by our friends. And they're only brought to mind when we are challenged by a foreigner from another ideological universe. And that quote comes from James Sire, who wrote the book, The Worldview Next Door. Great book if you haven't read it. All right, so what is a worldview? A worldview is a little bit like a pair of sunglasses. It is um, just like a sun, uh, a pair of sunglasses. Those colored lenses color your vision and, and affect the way you view everything. In the same way, your worldview is going to color your perspective on all of life. Or another way you might put it is, it's it's like prescription lenses. Uh, if you're like me, I wore glasses for many many years. Then I got LASIK. Uh, thank God. But um, if you wear glasses, or you wear contacts. You understand that um, you need those lenses to be shaped just the right way, to bend the light as it comes into your eye so that you can make sense out of the world. And if you have the wrong prescription, it's gonna impact the way that you see and it's gonna impact your health as well. It can lead to headaches and not only that, but you might not see the bus that's coming uh, down the street and you might walk into traffic because you got the wrong prescription. So in the same way, worldview is like the lenses through which you view the world. And uh, my own stipulative definition, meaning my own definition that I've come up with that I think is pretty good, if I do say so myself, is this. Your worldview is the platform of assumptions that you hold upon which rest the way that you think about, feel about, and interact with the world. So it's a platform of assumptions. And you're standing on this platform. And from that platform, you are thinking, feeling, and interacting with the world. So that's what a worldview is. Everyone has one. They're unavoidable. Everybody has a worldview. If you think you don't have a worldview, then that belief is part of your worldview. And yet, even though we all have worldviews, we very rarely think about our worldview. We very very rarely question the fundamental assumptions that we're bringing to the table as we are thinking, feeling, and interacting with the world. So why think about worldview? Why should we be intentional here? Well, I can tell you first of all that most people don't. Most people don't think about worldviews. It's it's um, as James Sire said earlier in in that quote we read. We the only time we really think about worldview is when we are challenged by an outsider, someone who doesn't share our worldview. It's a little bit like uh, the one goldfish who turned to the other goldfish and said, "How's the water?" And the second goldfish said. What's water? You know, when you're swimming in something, and you have been all your life, it's very hard to step back and to view it as it were from the outside. So why should we, though? Why should we do this? Well, I want to give you a few reasons. Number one, let me give you a biblical reason. And again, if you're jotting down notes, write down Romans 12.2. Let me read that for you. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. What what the Apostle is saying here is that there are, there are basically two ways of interacting with, with the world, two ways of interpreting our human experience. There is the wisdom of the age. There's the worldview of the world, of the age, the current age in which we live. And then there's the worldview of God. And we're going to talk about the dichotomy between the worldview of the world or this age and the worldview of God. But what Paul is getting at here, what he seems to be indicating, is that in order to adopt God's worldview, it's not going to happen automatically. It's something that you need to be Committed to, it's something that you need to be commanded to do, and it act, actually it's an act of obedience in order to do so. Um, so, do not be conformed. That's a command. In other words, your default is to be conformed to the view of the world. So, Scripture is telling us: think about your worldview. In the same way, Colossians two eight says this. This is a great warning for us. Be careful that no one takes you captive. Through philosophy and empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. Now, right away, if you're reading that and you're like me and you love philosophy, I have a degree in philosophy of religion. You're going, whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa, whoa. Does this mean you know I, I can never read philosophy again? I mean, John Frame wrote a book called "Everyone's a Philosopher." So, Paul, what are you saying here? Well, here's the thing: what Paul is saying is he's not saying all philosophy is bad. He's saying don't be captured by philosophy that is based on the elements of the world, that's based on human tradition, that's based on the accepted patterns of thinking, acting, and feeling that have been adopted by and approved of by the world. It's a particular kind of philosophy. And empty deceit, what's that talking about? It's talking about arbitrary claims that sound good, sound powerful. You know, people say things like, follow the science. But when you push on that a little bit, what you find is a lot of these statements that people love, these aphorisms that people um, like to say as though they're self-evidently true. When you push on them, you find out that they are empty. They are nothing more than empty deceit. So we need to be thinking about our worldview so we don't get captivated and captured. 2 Timothy 1.13 says this: Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So how do we how should we think about worldviews? Well, we do so by holding on to the pattern of sound teaching found in Scripture, the apostolic teaching, the teaching of the apostles. And then Paul also tells Timothy, he says, in 2 Timothy 3:16. He says all scripture is inspired by god which is not the best translation it should be breathed out by god god breathed and is profitable for teaching for rebuking for correcting for training in righteousness so that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work and then first john 4 1 says this beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. All right, so we're thinking about worldview. We're supposed to test the spirits. Well, John, how should we test uh, How should we test these spirits? Well, go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. Scripture enables us, empowers us, equips us to test the messages that we come across. And Scripture tells us to watch out for false ideas and to see the world as God sees it. This is nothing less than an injunction for the Christian to think hard about worldview. And uh, so we see this in, in not only in these particular verses, but also in the flow of Scripture itself. Did you know that the Bible, within the Bible, we have a complete, cohesive, coherent worldview from start to finish, applying to every aspect of human experience? To my knowledge, the Bible is the only holy book of all the world's religions that accomplishes such a feat that contains within itself a complete and total summation of that system's worldview. No other philosophical system, at least no other one that I'm aware of, no other religion anyway, gets an entire worldview into a single book. Islam doesn't, they have the Quran and the Hadith, the tradition. Roman Catholicism doesn't do it. They have the Bible and the uh, church tradition. Judaism doesn't do it. They've got the Talmud and, um, and the, um, the, the other uh, extra-biblical traditions as well. So the Bible has within it a complete worldview. That fact itself, if we're studying the Bible, is going to inevitably cause us to be thinking about worldview. All right, so let me give you another reason. So there's the biblical reason. That should be enough, but let's let's talk practically. Practically speaking, we interact more successfully with the world when we view it rightly, when we view the world rightly. Let me give you an illustration of this. Imagine a child trying to put together a puzzle, but the puzzle is upside down. He's trying to do it upside down. Okay, it would be a lot easier if he flipped the the tray around and tried to do it right side up. If he looked at the picture the right the right way, right side up, it's a lot easier to make sense of it. Or imagine a, uh, looking through a telescope the wrong way. Okay, it's going to make things harder to see than uh, rather than easier. Let me give you an example from when I was a, a kid. When I was in preschool, uh, I was like three years old, maybe four years old. I was in preschool. I still remember this like it was yesterday. There was one day when I got very confused. Why did I get confused? Because the teacher had put a movie on, some educational thing about a cartoon dragon, I think it was. And I was so confused because I didn't understand how projectors worked. I knew about the TV at home. At home, you turn on the TV and you look at the TV, you look into the TV as it were. But so what did I try to do? I turned around and tried to look into... The projector, I know, not too smart. But I'm sitting there. You can imagine the the screen. There's the the screen, and there's my big three year old head uh, shadow blocking most of the picture. And I remember the teachers coming up. No, Joel, you you, you look at the screen, and I was so confused. Why? Because um, I couldn't see the picture because I was looking at things the wrong way. I didn't understand. Um, so practically speaking, we get more profit out of our interactions with the world when we are looking at things the right way. And of course, Scripture corroborates this as well. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, it says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Romans 12 too? Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Worldview thinking allows us to make the most of our time, allows us to be, to maximize our productivity in this world, our stewardship of the resources that God has given us, including our time. And in the process, as we study worldview, as we seek to be more productive with our time, with God's resources, we understand what the will of God is. God does not want us Believe falsehood. He is the God of truth. All right. Let me give you another reason, an existential reason. Existential, having to do with the satisfaction of the soul, the 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 experience of human existence. Let me say this: life is more satisfying when we live for the truth. When we live truthfully, God's word is truth. So we are more satisfied when we live in light of that truth. Life is more satisfying when it is lived in a truthful way, when we live it the way that we were designed to live. Think about this. Think about a potted plant. When is a potted plant more satisfied and even more free? Is it when it's in its pot sitting on your windowsill in your kitchen? Or would you be making that potted plant more free if you were to dig down, uproot it, take it to your front door, kick open your front door and chuck it out onto the sidewalk and say, be free plant. Clearly, unless it gets put back in another plant, pretty soon that plant is going to die because it was created to be in soil. A potted plant does best when it is planted in the soil. And a pot is a perfectly good, perfectly freeing place for that plant to be able to grow and thrive. In the same way, we were created um, for a certain purpose, and we are more satisfied and even more free when we understand that purpose and live according to that purpose. And thinking about worldview and trying to shape our worldview in line with, with God's truth, God's, God's word, is much more satisfying. So 1 John 1.7 says, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We, we have a closeness to God. We are created to be with God, and we can't be, because we're sinners, we can't be with God unless we're redeemed. But if we walk in the light, the light of God's truth, the light of God's word, the light of holiness, all of which make no sense without the biblical worldview, if we do those things, if we make an effort to live that way, then we have this closeness and this redemption from Jesus Christ. Matthew 4 4 also says this He answered, It is written, man must not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we are nourished when we study God's word and seek to live by it. All right, let me give you another reason. That's existential. Let's talk about evangelistic. Let me give you an evangelistic reason why you should think about worldviews. According to recent research, this is going back two, three years, 95% of Americans— do not have what Barna calls, Barna the Research Group, does not have a Bible-centered worldview. What that means is they are living without God's answers to life's biggest questions. That also means that they are under God's condemnation, according to John 3.18. And unless they repent, they will perish, according to Luke 13.3 and John 3.16. Jesus commissioned us to disciple the nations, Matthew 28, 19. Yet, how can we teach what we don't understand ourselves? All right, let me give you one more reason. We've studied a lot of reasons here. Let me give you a doxological reason. What does doxology mean? Doxology means worship. So, having to dox- dox- doxological has to do with worship. So, all of this all this worldview thinking actually brings glory to God by bringing us to the worship of Him. As we plumb the depths of God's Word and we see how it applies to every nook and cranny of our lives, we cannot help but cry out with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and untraceable His ways. That's Romans eleven thirty-three. So, there is a doxological purpose to uh, to the study of God's wisdom and God's knowledge. In other words, the biblical worldview Okay, so we need to think about worldview. Hopefully you've seen that. but now let's let's dive into actual worldviews. what we, we've talked about what a worldview is. We've talked about why they matter, why we need to think about them. Now let's look at what a worldview actually does. And I say this, I say that every worldview must answer seven questions. Now, where did I come up with seven from? Notice I said, I say this. I didn't say God's word says this, but I I think I can make the case from scripture. As we go, you're going to see that. But different worldview thinkers, different theologians and philosophers will identify uh, different major questions that every worldview has to answer. So like uh, Al Mohler talks about origin, um, meaning uh, let's see, he says, he says, where do we come from? What's wrong with us? Is there any hope? And where are we going? I believe those are the the four that, um, that Al Mohler president of Southern Baptist theological seminary uses. If there are any number of lists of fundamental questions. Every worldview must answer. I, I, think that these seven that we're going to study in this course encompass all of them without getting without doubling up without being redundant let's talk about what those what those seven worldview questions are the first one is what is real now what is real this deals with questions of metaphysics and ontology metaphysics means ultimate reality, beyond physics, after physics, um, you know, physics dealing with the the, the, uh, the physical world. And actually, interestingly enough, I just learned this the other day, the name metaphysics comes from the philosophers who were gathering up, I think Aristotle's works, and they just were collating all his works. And um, he had talked about physics, and they didn't have a name for what came next, talking about ultimate reality. So they just called it metaphysics, which literally means after physics or with physics. Um, but we now use the word metaphysics to talk about prime reality. Um, it also have to, has to do with ontology. Ontology is the study of being. And so when we're asking what is real, we're asking questions like this. What is the nature of prime reality? What is ultimately real? And what is God-like? What is the divine-like? So first question of Every worldview is what is real. The next question is this: What is right? Now we might also phrase this: What is good? This deals with the study of values, or as philosophers call it, axiology. Axiology is the study of values. Within that, bound up with that, you're going to get questions about morality and ethics. So are now we're talking about right behavior in different situations. Is um, is morality? absolute is it subjective is it objective where do laws of morality and ethics come from as well as politics what should be allowed in society and questions of virtue how can i be a good person so here we're asking questions like what is good um and how do we know what is good what does it mean to sin or to transgress the boundaries of goodness uh attended with this, bound up with this as well, is you're also going to get questions of aesthetics. Aesthetics have to do with beauty and what is beautiful. So, this is why when people go to beauty school, they're studying aesthetics. So, beauty and what is beautiful. This is all bound up with what is right or what is good. Okay, that's the second question. The third question every worldview has to answer is this. What can we know for sure? This deals with epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And uh, bound up with this is truth. We need to know what truth is and how do we come to know it. We need to know what kinds of beliefs count as knowledge. Do you have to have a good reason for what you believe or is simply believing a true fact? Enough. And by the way, what is truth? What does that mean? Is truth universal, or is it subjective? Is it objective? Is it limited in scope? Is it purely situational? These are all questions that have to do with epistemology and knowledge. The fourth question every worldview has to answer is, what does it mean to be human? Now now we're talking about anthropology. This is the study of humanity. What does it mean to be human? And by the way, while we're talking about that, we're also talking about what's wrong with humanity. What's, uh, what is human nature? Are people fundamentally good, or are we fundamentally broken, or are we fundamentally evil? How do we fix what's wrong with us? Is there any way of fixing what's wrong with us? By the way, as we go... Notice that we're talking in sort of philosophical terms, but there's a lot of, if you've been in the church for a while, there's a lot of Christian theology bound up with this. Greg Bonson, when Greg Bonson, who is, I think, one of the greatest philosophers and the, um, apologists of the 20th century, he points this out when he talks about worldview. He says that when you're talking about worldview, you're really talking about the biblical, or at least metaphysics. He, he, he addresses it to metaphysics. I think it applies to all of worldview. You're really dealing with questions of creation, fall, and as he puts it, consummation, or as I like to say, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These are biblical categories, and um, it makes sense that all worldviews would be addressing these ideas because, after all, We do live in God's world, and the biblical worldview is the true worldview. It's inescapable. Even the categories that we use to think about the world, even the categories and the questions that worldviews answer, can't really avoid Christian theology. Okay, so we've talked about four questions so far. We've talked about what is real, what is right, what can we know for sure, what does it mean to be human? Now let's talk about question number five. What is the meaning of life? Now, here we're dealing with teleology. Teleology comes from the Greek word telos, which means goal or end. We're talking about questions of purpose. Have we been created for something? Are we doing what we were created to do? Are are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Are we here by random chance? Did time and nature and natural selection kick us up out of the muck and mire over billions of years? Um, Do we get to define our meaning? Is there a point to all of this human experience? Does God have a purpose for us? And if so, how do we discover that purpose? Question six, where is everything headed? We're going to talk about eschatology or the study of last things. This has to do with questions like destiny and ascribing meaning to the whole flow of history. Is history circular or is it linear? Does it have a beginning and an end? You know what, I've been very fascinated lately by the, the movies and shows that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been cranking out because they're really starting to tell this story of a circular timeline. Um, if you watched the TV, the, the show Loki, if you ever streamed that, I know some of you guys are are nodding your heads right now. You know what I'm talking about. Um, in Loki, it, it depicts the time. I won't give you any spoilers if you haven't seen it, but uh, it depicts time as circular. Is that true? Or is there a set start and finish to uh, to the the, the timeline? As Christians, our Bible starts with Genesis, which is a word that means beginning, and it goes all the way to the last book, Revelation, or as the Greeks called it, Apocalypse, which interestingly has, in our modern times, become synonymous with end of the world. That's not actually what the word apocalypse means, but it is interesting that we think of it in those terms because it sort of points up the fact that the Bible has a beginning and an end and tells all of history. So we're going to look at how the Bible answers questions like, where are all things headed? Will justice finally prevail? Is history more like a Greek comedy or a Greek tragedy? And am I on the right side of history? We hear that phrase a lot, don't we? All right, and then finally, question seven, who is Jesus? This is the study of Christology Christology. Now you might say, wait a minute, every worldview out there has a Christology. Doesn't that seem like you're kind of loading the discussion with your Christian presuppositions? Aren't you kind of rigging the discussion uh, right off the bat um, in, in order to say that every worldview in the world deals with Jesus Christ? Well, here's the thing. First of all, yes, I am a Christian. And I do believe that Jesus is Lord. That should be no secret to you whatsoever. However, it just so happens that every worldview, at least the major religions in the world, and dare I say, most, if not all, philosophical systems and worldviews somehow deal with the question of the man, Jesus. Every worldview deals with Jesus in some way. We're going to see how different religions try to co-opt. Jesus for their cause. And it really tells you about the massive global impact that this one man, Jesus, had. For us as Christians, of course, there is no greater question that we can be asking than, who is Jesus? Is Jesus merely a man? Is he a created divine being or an angel? Is he a God or is he the God? And what did Jesus claim about himself? And are those claims true? So there's going to be a lot there. Now, those are the seven questions. Let me just recap them for you. What is real? What is right? What can we know for sure? What does it mean to be human? What is the meaning of life? Where is everything headed? Who is Jesus? And if you've answered all those questions, you've got yourself a platform of assumptions upon which are based, upon which rest the way that you think, about, uh, feel about, and interact with the world. In other words, you've got a worldview. Now, at the end of the day, or as R.C. Sproul would say, in the final analysis, there are ultimately only two kinds of worldviews. Yes, only two kinds of worldviews. There's the God worldview and the not God worldview. Or we might say there are the not God worldviews. Those are the only two categories into which you can really put all the worldviews. All of them are going to fit into one of those categories. There is, and I told you we would address this a little bit later, here we go. There is an antithesis between the two major kinds of worldviews, and it goes back to the very dawn of creation. When I say antithesis, what I mean is, is there is an opposition Enmity between the God world, the God worldview, and the not God worldviews. There's an enmity; they are they're hostile to one another. And this goes all the way back to Genesis three fifteen. In Genesis three fifteen, the Lord said, speaking to the serpent, to who we find out later is Satan, he says, "I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring." He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, Satan had set up the antithesis earlier than this when he tempted Eve. See, God had said that if she ate the forbidden fruit, she would surely die. Genesis 2.17. Satan comes along in Genesis 3.4 and literally says, you will not surely die. Now, at this moment, Eve is faced with a choice on the surface it looks like her her only choice is eat the fruit or don't eat the fruit in reality her choice is this do i trust my creator's words and commands and obey them implicitly as his creation or do i take upon myself the authority to decide what is true and what is false? Who is going to be the ultimate arbiter of truth, God or me? In answering that question, Eve is really answering the question, who is Lord? Satan is under the guise of tempting her with fruit. And actually, he was tempting her with fruit, so it wasn't just a guise, but he's making it seem like that's her only choice. But in reality, she's choosing whether or not she will view herself as autonomous, or she will view God as the Lord. And that antithesis, which cuts through Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, right through Genesis 3.15, it also cuts all the way through Scripture. So by the time you get to Matthew 12, 33 through 35, listen to this. Here's what it says. "'Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil?' For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. You hear the antithesis there? 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. Hear the antithesis. There's a spirit of the world, and there's the spirit who comes from God, the Holy Spirit. James 2, 2 says this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Hear that antithesis. There are two ways to live, two ways to view the world. There's God's way, and then there's the not God way, the way of the world. First John 2:15 and seven fifteen through seventeen says this: Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Again, two ways to live, two ways to think, two ways to interact with the world. Two Ways to Love. There's this antithesis that cuts right through Scripture. And if you want to see this very clearly, go to Psalm 1. I'm not going to read it now, but Psalm 1 describes the two ways to live, that of the righteous and that of the wicked. Now, I know a lot of these verses are are focusing on the way that you walk, the way that you live, the way that you interact with the world but remember the way that we think feel and act interact are all rooted in our worldview if you change the worldview you're going to change the fruit of the worldview the thinking the feeling and the acting so this is why jesus says make the tree good and the fruit will be good what comes out of the mouth is is uh, is what's in the heart and so the way that you view the world what's in your heart is going to affect how you think, feel, and interact with the world. To this day, to this very day, there are only two fundamental ways of looking at the world, one based on God's truth and all the others that are based on Satan's lies. Now, in this course, it is going to be absolutely impossible for us to possibly compare the biblical worldview with all the other worldviews that are out there. There are many worldviews, but what I want to do is I want to break them down into many different uh, or into a few different categories, and those categories are going to help us to understand the um, the, the broad categories of the, the, Let's say this: they're going to help us understand the not God worldviews and their various the way that they manifest themselves in various ways. So, we're going to be comparing the biblical worldview with the worldviews falling into these different categories. Theistic worldviews, these are worldviews that believe that there is a god or many gods. Okay, so we're going to look at both monotheistic, meaning one god, and polytheistic worldviews. We're not going to we're not going to see how every single worldview out there answers every single question, but we're going to look in broad terms how the different theistic worldviews compare To the true biblically theistic worldview, which is the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview. Then we're going to look, we're also going to look at atheistic worldviews. Here we're going to look, now atheistic uh, uh, means that there is no God. Atheism believes in no God, or as many of my atheist discussion partners will say, um, they simply lack. Belief in God, but as I always often put it, the God of the Bible says that you know Him. So if you're saying that you lack belief in that God, you're saying that He, that that God who you know does not exist. That is what you're saying. So atheism, uh, there are different kinds. There are materialistic atheisms, and there are dualistic um, atheisms. Materialistic atheisms believe only in the material world. Um, Greg Bonson calls these materialistic, atomistic worldviews. And then there are atheistic, dualistic worldviews. Dualism believes that there is the material, but then there's also the spiritual or that maybe the mental. And the mental or the spiritual in some way is separate from the material. But they, but they being atheistic, they do not believe in God. Okay, so we'll compare the biblical worldview to atheistic worldviews. We'll also look at agnostic worldviews. Now, within this category, we're going to look at things like nihilism, skepticism. These are worldviews that say you can't know the truth about God and the world and the self, or that maybe we just need to be pluralistic about it. So pluralism is going to actually fit in here as well. You know, uh, all ways are equally valid. There's no meaningful way to differentiate between the worldviews or religions that are out there. We'll also look at monistic worldviews. Monism is a worldview that says that all, all is one. And here specifically, we're going to be looking at spiritual monism as opposed to material monism. Um, which would fit more along the lines of atheistic uh, worldviews that we looked at earlier. But uh, monism, think in terms, if you want to understand a a good example of monism, think in terms of Hinduism or new age thought, which says that all is one. Atman is Brahman. The human soul is the oversoul. The one is the many. And the many is really just an illusion. Okay, so that's monism. And then we'll also look uh, we might do. We might get into a little bit of dualism. Dualism. Here I'm thinking in terms of like Platonism. Uh, Platonism comes from Plato, which says that there exists both matter and forms. The forms are what give the matter its meaning, and uh, Plato espoused this this invisible world this transcendent world of the forms, and the forms are what give, um, they are the source of meaning. So you, you've never seen a perfect circle, but somewhere in the world of forms, there exists a perfect circle, and it's based on that that we have our idea of a circle. Okay, so brief, brief, brief overview of, of the other kinds of worldviews we're going to be looking at and comparing the Christian worldview to. This is not a comparative religions course, and This is not uh, a survey of all the world's worldviews. My primary purpose in this course is to show you what the Bible teaches about life's biggest questions, how the Bible answers life's biggest questions. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of The Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew, under the division of Crew City to learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think.